Judge pauses Edmonton Police's plan to dismantle several encampments. Child dies in a hockey practice after having a puck hit his neck. British Columbia couple fights for the right to have a child in their one-bedroom apartment. York Southwestern Tenants Union shows that solidarity can defeat a landlord. Serbia's government looks to have won the snap election there. And Israel liquidates the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Good morning. It's Monday, December 18th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. First, we start with news in Edmonton. The Edmonton Police Service is planning to deconstruct encampments across the city this morning. But those plans were stopped by an injunction on Friday, reports Paige Parsons from CBC News. In his decision, the judge used the word interim twice for some reason, saying it was an interim interim injunction. It's not explained why. Police were forced to wait until at least noon today before it raids eight camps. The injunction was sought by the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights. The camps that the police have targeted to raid are located outside of the Herb Jamison Center, the Bissell Center, and sites at 85th Street and 101A Avenue, 84th Street and 106th Avenue, 95th Street and 105A Avenue, and Dawson and Kinnaird Ravines. The police expect to be doing this all week and then go home to their warm living rooms and celebrate Christmas inside. In the article, at two sites alone, somewhere between 440 and 550 people are going to be displaced by the raids, not to mention their personal belongings and tents will all be confiscated. The city and police argue that the sites are unsafe. Two people have died in them in the past few months. But critics point out that addressing safety can be done without needing to displace people. Neither the police nor the city said they'd comment on the injunction until there's a final decision from the courts. In their notice, cops told service providers to stay out of the camps during the evictions, quote, for safety purposes, unquote. And they asked for people to identify individuals who they were worried about so that police could, quote, evaluate and discuss options before closure, unquote. Mayor of Edmonton, Amarjeet Sohi, said on Friday that he had only just learned about the decision himself. Next, a horrible thing happened last week in Saint-Eustache, Quebec. A boy who was 11 years old was hit by a puck inside of an arena and died as a result of the injury. It happened at the Walter Buswell Complex. The boy was wearing the proper neck gear when the injury happened. In an article for CTV News by Lillian Roy, she goes between experts who lament that things do happen that cannot be stopped because they're freak accidents versus talking to ex-hockey players who call for more to be done. What makes the story hard to parse through is that the circumstances of the hit aren't clear, whether it happened during a practice game or during drills, or if someone shot a puck at the wrong time, or if the player was in the wrong location. Roy talks to Trent McCleary, who had a career-ending neck injury in 2000. He had played for the Canadien. He argues that neck protection isn't good enough to stop, quote, direct, hard impact, unquote. But liberal MNA and former NHLer Enrico Ciccone said that what happened sounded like a freak accident and something that might not be able to be stopped, considering the quality of the gear the kids are expected to play with right now. 
Next to British Columbia, where a couple was fined for violating occupancy limits in something called a strata. If you're not a person living in British Columbia, that's a way of talking about living somewhere where you own the place in which you live, but you pay common fees to a larger building. It sounds a lot like what Quebec calls a condo. Certainly, that's how condos here work. And I'm pretty sure that that's how they work elsewhere, too. But okay. British Columbia calls them stratas for some reason. Anyway, here's the story. Christine James and Matt Rowland were living in Fairview Village in Vancouver. They had a kid in 2017, and three months after the kid was born, the strata council sent a notice saying that the bylaws prohibited them from having more than two people in a one-bedroom unit. The council gave the couple 12 months to figure out what to do and become bylaw compliant. The story was reported by Lisa Stacy with CTV News. As owners, they felt squeezed in their options, either sell their unit or rent it out and find somewhere else to live. Then in December 2018, the Strata Council said that they would be fined $50 per month because they still lived there. And then, oops, they had another kid. When the new kid was 23 days old, the council sent another notice saying that four people in the one-bedroom apartment was too many, and they were definitely now in violation of the bylaws. Then, in July 2019, the family said that they couldn't leave because there were too many repairs that were required to make the unit sellable or rentable. It didn't say that the repairs were internal to the unit or if the repairs involved the corporation's the strata. Common elements within these units are usually the responsibility of the strata council. Then the council tried to levy a $200 fine every seven days on the family to get them out. They did eventually move, probably mostly because four people in a one-bedroom apartment isn't super ideal when the kids start running around. But then they lodged a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal, arguing that they had been discriminated against based on family status. They wanted to challenge this rule not just for themselves, but for others who might find themselves in the same spot. In 2021, they sold their unit. The strata eventually reversed the fine, and because the family moved out, they argued to the tribunal that there was no longer a problem. The tribunal didn't believe that that was a good enough argument to toss the complaint. And so they dismissed the arguments made by the strata. The issue now passes on to a hearing. What's missing in the story, though, is the fact that the council surely had a democratic component to it. There must have been some sort of annual general meetings or other kinds of meetings that this issue should have been raised at. I don't mean as a substitute for going to the tribunal, but I mean as a course of action at the same time. It is not unreasonable to expect that kids appear out of nowhere, and it seems like a strange rule for the members of the council, who I assume are comprised of owners that were elected from other owners, though maybe not, Anyway, I'd be curious to know if there are any internal debates at the council or among the members of the strata to address this before the Human Rights Tribunal actually ruled on it. After all, the money that the council spends on legal fees would come right from the money that could otherwise be spent on repairs and maintenance. And children aren't a surprise. So was there any sort of democratic decision making or debates happening within this corporation at the same time? Anyway, I don't know. And it'll be interesting uh, to watch what happens next. Next to another story about fighting for the right to live somewhere, the York Southwestern Tenants Union in Toronto had a very important victory over the weekend. According to their Twitter feed, they staged a 74-hour protest at Barney Rivers' 1440 Lawrence West property to help a tenant to get access to her unit. The tenant's name is Carmen, and her landlord, Barney River, and its owner, Salim Manji, locked Carmen out of her unit. 
Carmen had left to pay her landlord rent that she owed, and she was told she can return to her unit. But when she did return, she was forcibly evicted. And so members of the York Southwestern Tenants Union called for an immediate action to stage a sit-in at the office of Barney River until Carmen was allowed back into her unit. She owed just over $500. The union said that the building is in a state of disrepair. There are bedbug infestations, and the disrepair is so bad that mail has stopped being delivered by Canada Post. Because of this, Carmen didn't get a notice to participate in her own eviction hearing. The members of the union stood off with police over the days that they occupied the office. They said on their Twitter feed that Toronto Police and fire poured resources into evicting Carmen, an older black woman who had never had issues with her rent before. The union also got the landlord tenant board to agree to an expedited time for another hearing. And so Carmen, in addition to actually having been able to get back into her unit because of the direct action, will also have her day in front of the tribunal next week. And just a side note, I'm using their Twitter feed to tell you this story because the only story that I've seen that is proper reporting sorry blog to you, is behind a paywall and I can't get past it. Maybe someday we'll make enough money here at Sandy and Nora to pay for every paywall in Canada. Next to Serbia, where the ruling Serbian Progressive Party is poised to win the election. Despite the name, the Serbian Progressive Party is a right-wing political party. Al Jazeera reports that the snap election is seen by many as a referendum on the government of Aleksandr Vucic. He's the president and is not actually up for election in this election. This is all based on exit polls, but they are expected to hold 130 of 250 seats. The Serbian Progressive Party has been in power since 2012. They're populists. Their main rivals are the Serbia Against Violence Party, a centrist coalition that is expected to get about 23% of the vote. Vucic's power was threatened for the first time since his party took office in 2012 after two mass shootings killed 18 people, including many schoolchildren. That, plus rising inflation, created the conditions where it seemed possible that Vucic's government might fall. There were complaints of irregularities and corruption during the election process. The election was overseen by Ipsos and a Serbian not-for-profit that ensures fairness in its elections. They reported many irregularities, including the organized arrival of voters. Radomir Lazovic, the leader of the opposition, claimed that signatures were forged and that votes were bought. And rumors on social media said that people from Bosnia and Herzegovina were being illegally permitted to vote. Prime Minister Anna Brnabic rejected the accusations. And finally, also from Al Jazeera, Israel appears to be liquidating the Jabalia refugee camp. The camp is located in northern Gaza, and this past weekend, Israel killed at least 90 people and injured another 100 in a region that has already seen most of its health infrastructure also destroyed by Israel. The son of Daoud Shahab from Islamic Jihad is among the dead. Israel has continued to fire on the area, making rescue and recovery efforts dangerous and basically impossible. Those are your headlines for Monday, December 18th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful Monday. It is pouring rain all day here today and we're having a little protest. So wish me luck. I will talk to you tomorrow.